Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of today's scripture from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, and also which, also which I also hate. Yet let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Charlie, for reading our lesson uh, this morning, and welcome to all of you, the few and the brave and the proud, in the midst of this uh, rainy, uh, foggy Sabbath day. Uh, we're grateful that you're here for worship, and I don't know, on Baptismal Reaffirmation Day, it seems appropriate to me that God is baptizing the earth this morning as we come in. You've already been baptized by creation as you walked into the building, and we look forward to that time in our service uh, when we will renew as we've read in the scripture, we will renew our first love by coming before God and receiving the water as a reaffirmation of our love for Christ. If you were here last week, you know that we began on Epiphany Sunday, the first Sunday of 2019, with this series that we're calling Defying Gravity. We began with a reading from Revelation, and we're camping out in Revelation for the next seven weeks. And we talked about last week how peculiar it seems, at least at first, that we're beginning a new year, we're beginning the season of, of Epiphany with this study on Revelation. And so we asked the question, why consider the end at the beginning? And we talked about how it's really instinctive that any time we start any endeavor, that we have a goal in mind at the very beginning. We have a vision, we have an objective, we have a target or a purpose that we're shooting for. It reminds me of the old Lewis Carroll quote from Alice in Wonderland, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. That line actually comes from an exchange between Alice and the Cheshire Cat. You know the story. Alice, who is wandering, asked the cat, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go? To which the Cheshire cat replies, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. To which Alice responds, I don't much care where. Then, says the cat, it doesn't matter which way you go. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So I don't know, maybe it's just me, or maybe it is necessary at the beginning of 2019 to at least contemplate, to ponder the end, the objective, 
at the beginning. John's vision that we call Revelation infers that history is actually going somewhere. Thanks be to God. That it's not an endless merry-go-round. It is not a vicious cycle of chaos and violence and confusion, though it often seems so in the news. Before we go any further, I want to say a word to you about apocalyptic literature because it is tough sledding. Our clergy gathered a couple of weeks ago and we read this entire revelation, 22 chapters from beginning to end, and listened to it and were somewhat confused and then discussed it at the end. It is peculiar material. It is bizarre imagery, word pictures, which we often avoid like the plague. But apocalyptic literature is essentially crisis literature. In other words, it was born in a context of social upheaval. It arose in a context of political turmoil where God's people were under severe, enormous pressure, pressure of persecution, pressure of potential extermination. So the point of apocalyptic literature is this. No matter what you're going through, no matter what predicament you may be facing, no matter what enemy you're struggling with, God is still on the throne. God is sovereign Lord of the universe. God is in charge of human history, and he will intervene to accomplish his salvation. He will. Peter Kreeft, some of you know the name, who is a Christian philosopher, said, things look different when history is seen as his story. And so it is with John. John has a vision in the midst of his own crisis. He's having a personal crisis. He's received a one-way ticket to Patmos. He's an exile because of his preaching. In fact, he's on the emperor's hit list because of his witness about Christ. And when we find him in Patmos, he's living his last days, his elder years, in isolation, completely outside the fellowship of the church that has been his life. And yet in his calamity, in his struggle, he encounters the risen Lord and he's given a message. The message is personally for him, but it's also for the seven churches of Asia Minor that he has served. He is the pastor emeritus there. And indeed, this vision is meant not just for seven churches. The number seven means completion, perfection. This is indeed for all believers, past, present, and future, who find yourselves in a struggle, in defining moments. In chapters 2 and 3 that we're going to think about in the next few weeks, John addresses each of those churches individually. And the pattern by which he addresses them is similar for each parish. He begins by reminding each church that Christ is present, standing amidst the lampstand. Remember, lampstand is code for the witness of the church Jesus is with you, is what he's saying. And he's also saying that Jesus knows what's going on in your church. 
Now, I want to stop there because the fact that Christ knows what's happening in the church is both comforting and a little frightening. To each parish, he gives then a word of commendation and challenge. In other words, the living Christ affirms the church and critiques the church. He knows intimately the hearts of the people. And he begins with Ephesus. I want to give you just a sneak peek at the city of Ephesus. I've been there. Some of you have been there if you have been on the travels of Paul. Ephesus was a leading city in Asia Minor. Indeed, next to Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, Ephesus was the place of greatest influence in the known world in the first century. The population of Ephesus was no less than 250,000 people. It was a harbor city built on the gulf side of the Aegean Sea. It was also a crossroads for three major trade routes that made Ephesus a strategic place to plant a church. More than anything else, however, Ephesus was made famous because of the Temple of Artemis. You remember one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Artemis, also called Diana, the great mother goddess of the hunt and the daughter of Zeus. It took 120 years to build that building. People came from the world over to see it. In fact, historians tell us that it measured 100,000 square feet, had 127 marble columns, 55 feet high, 36 of them inlaid with gold and jewels. It was the equivalent of two football fields, and it was four times the size of the Parthenon. Not the one on West End, but the one in Athens. In fact, Paul's ministry there became so effective in the early 60s that it triggered a great riot. This is in Acts chapter 19. A great riot occurred because of Paul's ministry because the more he preached, the more the economy went south. Apparently, the gift shop at the temple almost went belly up. Tourism was down. People were no longer buying the trinkets of Artemis because Paul was saying there is no God made with human hands. He nearly got himself killed with that kind of preaching. And by the way, isn't it true? It's easier in our culture to live with idolatry than a dip in the Dow Jones average. But the church was having an impact. In fact, Paul stayed in Ephesus twice as long as any other city where he established a church. He stayed in Ephesus three years. And this city became the epicenter of Pauline Christianity. But just before he left Ephesus, according to Acts 20, this was on his third mission trip, he called the elders together, he called the church council, the leaders of the church together, and he spoke this word of warning. I know that after I'm gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In fact, some even from your own group will come distorting the truth in order to entice disciples to follow them. And then off he went. It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus said in his signature sermon, Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
you will know them by their fruits. In other words, what Jesus and Paul are saying is this. Not all claims to represent the apostolic faith are to be accepted. Not all theologies are created equal. Now, this doesn't mean that we must always be uniform in the body. That isn't true at all. In fact, the inclusion of four Gospels in your New Testament and all of these letters to different communities indicate that there are differences in the way that we express our faith, but that doesn't mean that any old way will do. But how do you know? How do you discern what Jesus said by their fruits? In other words, what he's saying is it's not just about doctrine. It's about behavior. It's about conduct. I remember the great David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, 20th century, who once said, I spent half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. Hmm. I think this is often where the church gets in trouble. It's not just our theological convictions, it's our behavior, it's our actions, it's our fruits. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there's a lot of interesting people in the church, and many of them are clergy. We used to have a saying in North Georgia that the church is sort of like, like granola. There's a lot of flakes, nuts, and fruit in the church. I mean, just look at the clergy, for goodness sake. And it's a wonderful thing. God loves all shapes and all sizes, but not all claims are to be accepted. Discernment is necessary. In the second generation of Christianity in Asia Minor, Paul's warning came true. All kinds of deviations, all kinds of heresies threatened the church. All kinds of isms like legalism, libertinism, Gnosticism, Donatism, Manichaeism, isms, we still have them. Traditionalism, fundamentalism, liberalism, materialism, racism, denominationalism, we could go on all day, experientialism, materialism, all of these threaten the heart of the church. In fact, Houston Smith said all isms always end up in schisms. And how true is that? But somehow or another, by God's grace, the Ephesians were able to stay true. In fact, notice that the Lord, the risen Lord, commends them in chapter 2. Charlie read it for us. Listen to this. I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance, I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. That's the commendation. Here comes the challenge. But I have this against you. 
you have abandoned your first love from when you first began. Remember then from where you have fallen, repent and do the things that you did at first or I will, says the Lord, remove your lampstand. Here's what had happened in Ephesus. They had preserved their orthodoxy, and that's important, right thinking, but they were on the verge of losing their orthopraxy. That's right loving. It still happens sometimes in the life of our culture and in the church. In the process of fighting our theological battles, we can become a bit paranoid and a little defensive and develop what I call battle fatigue. And before we know it, the heart has become cold and the church becomes a little unloving. In the process of defending faith, they forgot the more excellent way. It's ironic, isn't it, that while Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote some notes. He wrote to the Corinthians. And in chapter 13, he wrote to them, if I have faith so as to move mountains, but don't know how to love, I'm nothing. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy? You lose your lampstand. You lose your witness. Let me give you an example, and then we're going to come and renew our first love. Something happened here on Christmas Eve that I will never forget. Just a few weeks ago, it was the 8 o'clock service. It was right after the 8 o'clock service. It was about 10 after 9. Most people were exiting fairly quickly, and I noticed that about midway back, Jim, about where you are on the right side, as I was leaving, there was still a couple about my age that was seated there in the pew, and they were absolutely obsessed with each other. They were hugging and taking seriously what Paul said about greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> All I could think about was safe sanctuaries. PDA right in front of me, public display of affection, and there it was. I started to say, y'all need a room? <laughs> but I walked by, went out to greet the crowd, and then a few minutes later, here they came, looking like somebody had just died and left them a million bucks. I said, Merry Christmas. They said, Merry Christmas. I said, what is, what's going on with you two? And she held up her hand. And the shine of the ring almost blinded me. A new diamond, and apparently, while we were singing Silent Night, Holy Night, he put that ring on her finger and offered this divine proposal. I'm not kidding. And she said, yes. And I said, this guy's good. They were absolutely giddy, just infatuated with love. I've been thinking about it ever since. It occurs to me that what happens or should happen in this room, wherever you sit, week after week, has a similar effect on us. Jesus is standing among us. He's between the candles, the lampstands. He's a part of the witness. 
Whenever you come into this house and worship the living Christ and affirm your faith and hear the youth choir sing, when we gather to praise that name that is above every name, I tell you it is like saying yes to a divine proposal that the God of all creation who has come down to us in human form, clothing himself in flesh, has gone to great lengths to show us his love. In fact, I can make a case for the fact that the greatest PDA that the world has ever known happened on a Friday at a place called Golgotha where God's son made a divine proposal and gave his life out of love for you and for me. And I tell you, even on this rainy, foggy day, the thought of that just makes me giddy. <laughs> it just floods me with joy. Sometimes it wanes. Sometimes life happens and we drift. There is an undertow in this world, you know, that pulls us different directions. And sometimes we get too far from love. We forget love, but love has never forgotten us. When Charlie read this morning, I hear again that voice of the prophet, remember your first love. Don't ever forget the love of God in Christ. Repent, turn around, and do the things you did at first. It's in the fruit. And all of that came to my mind with a couple midway back with a new ring. The litmus test of a disciple is not, first of all, doctrine and polity, though that is critical. It's about love. By this shall all people know that you're my disciples by the way that you structure the church? No. By the way that you love. The remedy for a cold heart is the love of Christ. They will know we're Christians by our love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And the only way to keep the lampstand burning <laughs> is to love unconditionally, even as you have been loved. What is true for the church in Ephesus is true for the church in Brentwood. We have challenging days ahead. So why not, at the beginning, think about the end? In the context of worship, while the risen Christ is among us, I want to call you back this morning to your first love. I want to invite you to reaffirm your vows, to renew the promise you made at baptism, so that orthopraxy matches orthodoxy, for Christ's sake, so that the lampstand remains front and center to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, she who has ears to hear, let them hear. Amen.